Hey everybody, welcome to Weekend Superstars. My name is John McHugh and uh, unfortunately my co-host is gone tonight. He is under the weather with his, actually his whole household is under the weather, so we wish them a speedy recovery and he apologizes that he can't be here tonight. But I'd like to welcome Mr. Jim Richardson to the show. Thanks for being on here, man. It's an honor and a pleasure. And like you, I miss George. Yeah. I was going to hopefully get some stories from him. Well, we'll <laughs> pretty much everyone we've had on, we've said we're going to have them back. So you might get another chance. <laughs> I would love that. But uh, I want to start with uh, the show we did last week. Yes. So uh, for those who don't know, the Breeders' Cup's in town. And uh, they've been having live music every night down, downtown at the Pavilion. And I, was it called the Legend Show or the All Star Show? It was called the Legends of Lexington. Yeah, and so we had George Moulton, Doug Breeding, Greg Austin, Johnny Lyman, and Jim Richardson. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you because we really don't know each other. I know it. I mean, we've met, um, and it's been a been on stage in a performing role, but not talking role. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this in the first okay. place. Is a lot of times we meet really great people at a show or on a break. And then if you're not actually in the band with someone, you don't hang out with them. That's exactly right. You know, my, And we've all got great stories, and I know we all get along, but there's never that chance of, hey, let's just get together and talk. And so that, this is a chance we actually get to know each other, you know, a little bit better, and it's just really cool. Well, and the story I've told since last Wednesday is talking to you and George I told my wife, she was there, and I said, you know, I was talking to George and John backstage, and she said, you mean the open air area behind the stage? I said, well, yeah, <laughs> it's still backstage. Yeah. <laughs> and talking about Austin City. Right. And, and told him that, you know, after being on the road for seven years, you know, six nights a week, making a living at it, traveling all over the country, my last night performing as a professional full-time musician was February 26th, at Austin City. Really? 1983. And he looked at me and said, I was 12. <laughs> I was like, well, there's the perspective for me. Um, yeah. And, you know, that was, uh, and, I, and I probably told the story to you all that night. I mean, I, I had been for seven years uh, making a living at it, and we traveled all over the country. We got lucky in that we had engaged with Steak and Ale, mm -hmm. which was a steak restaurant and bar. Um, back in the mid 70s and um, probably 60 to 70 percent of our bookings were steak and ales all over the country nice and it was what was they nice they had their own circuit they did they had their <laughs> own circuit and uh, you know it was I mean I wasn't a kid when I started doing it for a living you know yeah. like most people I started in 1961 I was in the eighth grade yeah and I sang great falsetto because my voice hadn't changed right so I sang briefly with a group in Louisville called the night owls which had a hit that I wasn't on because I was only there for a brief period called night owl uh, you know a classic one four five rock and roll yep. song uh, I spent about two weeks with the Trendell singing falsetto as a Trendell when the Carnations were the yeah. singers or cool. the band and the Trendells were the singers. Um, and then started a band in high school and just played high school, <clears throat> you know, yeah. all the teen club stuff. And I was the guy that on break would go out into the parking lot and get in my car and listen to the Grand Ole Opry. Nice. So we're, we're singing Beatles on stage, but... Yeah. I'm listening to Hank on the radio, and I was the weird guy. Right. Um, 
and it you know the, I, I came to UK to run track but that affinity to play and that's how I knew a guy who was working at Two Keys and he got me booked there and through college I played there and at the Continental Inn with a- Andy Rucker and Clark mm-hmm. Witt would play the big room and I, there was a little bar downstairs called the upstairs at the downstairs or the downs. I may have that backwards now. Yeah. And at that time, I'm singing Andy Williams songs and Glenn Campbell. I mean, it was the 60s. Right, yeah. Um, graduated, moved to Florida. Uh, there, you know, everybody knows where the elbow room is on the beach. Mm-hmm. But above it was a club called Crazy Greg's. And that's where I got a job working on the weekends. I was teaching high school and playing on the weekends at Crazy Greg's. Wow. Um, there to Bloomington, Indiana, singing All on the weekends. All over the place. And I was in Bloomington teaching, and I ended up getting hired to be what was called a curriculum coordinator. Mm -hmm. And our job was to bring artists into the schools. So you bring a songwriter in and talk about poetry. Yeah. You'd bring a uh, potter in and talk about math and how math concepts worked. And so I met all these people. Well, one of the guys doing my job in Terre Haute, Indiana, had just finished his doctorate up in... uh, Potsdam State University in New York, piano player, yeah. married. Um, and so as we got to know each other, I said, I'm playing this club over in Bloomington. Why don't you come over one week? And towards the end of that year, he said to me, you ever thought about doing this for a living? I said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Have you lost your mind? I said, I've heard tapes of me. Yeah. You can't do that. Um, and we added his wife, and we became a trio. We entered a contest. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I'm not a kid at this point. I'm 27 years old. Sure. We entered a contest, win the contest, and we became the opening act for Loggins and Messina at the Indiana State oh, wow. Fair. So we figured out we could do this for a living. Yeah. And so one of our buddies said, I'll be your manager. I mean, you, you can't make this up. Yeah. And uh, so he said, okay. And... We started, we drove to Florida and said we're going to start auditioning for, you know, other agents. And, and we got, we booked the club in uh, South Greenville, South Carolina. We came back, we thought we were heroes. We were going to, and we, yeah. uh, we hired a drummer, hired a bass player. A week before the gig, they called and canceled it. And suddenly we had no job. Yeah. We had no jobs. Um, <clears throat> That's so funny. Um, sorry to interrupt, but no, go. one of the questions I had planned yeah. to ask you, <laughs> I'd planned to ask everyone I've had so far, and that's just slipped my mind on every episode. But I saw, I read where you were a professional musician for a long time. Yeah. And I was going to ask what your parents thought of that. Oh. But you were already a grown man, so it didn't matter, did it? <laughs> well, and, and here, I didn't realize you were that old when you started. Well, here's a story that I, other than a very few close friends I don't know I've ever told. Um, there was a, uh, I've got a, there's a framed 45 on my wall, mm-hmm. and I think it was AGM Records, and that's horrible, they don't remember it. Uh, a guy had seen us and said, we want to record you. Now, you know, like a fish, man, he set that hook in my mouth, and yeah. I said, what do we need to do? And he said, we need $2,800. <laughs> yep. And I borrowed it from my parents. I didn't have twenty eight hundred dollars, right. and uh, so Frank Messina and I, uh, who was the keyboard player, 
And we went to Louisville and recorded uh, a song he had written called Sing For Me, and the other one was a song they had written for me called Lover, and we recorded it. And uh, one of those moments, I'm in Colorado driving, and I hear it on the radio. Oh, nice. Yeah. Only time I ever heard it. Yeah. Because um, it never went anywhere. It was not that good. Uh, That's still a great feeling, though. But it was a great feeling. And, and, you know, the professional part, and I think I told you all this the other night. I mean, I, I've always, after the fact, after you do it for a while, you realize, to me, it was like professional baseball. Mm-hmm. There was major league, triple A, double A, single A. Right, yeah. We were a double A band, had some triple A moments where we were in the right place and sure. opened up in college concerts for big names. But, you know, I, I'm just not that good. What, yeah. I, what I realized, what I learned that I was good at was entertaining people, mm-hmm. engaging them. Yeah. And, and I went to school, if you want to call it that. Uh, when we quit our jobs in 1976 and said, we're going to play music for a living, in uh, the first gig we had got yanked out from under us. Uh, I went to bars and clubs in Louisville and Bloomington, and I would go sit next to the stage and watch the audience. Yeah. And I landed on a group called Edwards, Clark, and Flynn, and they were all from Western North Carolina. And the first thing I noticed, they were a trio, <clears throat> similar to us, but you know we had the chick singer and. Yeah. And everybody loved Allison. I mean, the women loved her. The men loved her. Uh, she was amazing. Um, but watching this group, Edwards, Clark, and Flynn, I watched them change instruments all night. And I thought, oh my gosh, you guys can play anything. So, you know, I talked to them on a break. Next thing you know, we're at Hire Johnson's having breakfast at 2 in the morning. And, mm-hmm. and we became friends. They added another guy. They became Edwards, Clark, Flynn, and Jenkins. Then they added another guy, and they said, we can't just add another name. It'll sound like a law firm. <laughs> so they changed their name to Cullowee, which was the city they were all from in North Carolina. Gotcha. Uh, I learned more from those guys by watching the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so over the next seven years, I, Tim, I had Tim Lake as my instructor on banjo. Yeah. I had a guy in Birmingham that taught me how to play mandolin. And then I banged and thrashed around on the piano. Now, I could only play four songs on each instrument. So in our show, every night, I would play two to three songs. And people would think you were, you know, it, it's P.T. Barnum. It's Walt Disney. It's, it's creating right, yeah. the illusion Absolutely. that you can play that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we, and I'll shut up after this, but, you know, for... <laughs> We got plenty of time. <laughs> that, that, no, go the that first six months, you know, we didn't have anything booked. Um, and, and at the end of the six months, when I look back, we had worked in clubs nine nights. We played in Louisville, we played in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and we played in Lexington. But the thing that Frank and I had done the year before in that arts and education residence program, we had written a songwriting workshop for elementary and middle school. We sent a letter out to every school in southern Indiana and said, we'll come and work with your class and we'll have them write two songs in the last period of the day. We'll do a concert and we'll play those two songs. We booked the bejeebers out of it. Yeah. It's how we paid the bills. 
Um, and I had read a book then by Kenny Rogers called How to Make It in Music. And the first thing that I learned from it, he said, you have to identify how much you make a week. And that's, that's your band. You got to make, if they don't pay you that, you don't take the gig. Mm-hmm. And our number was $600 plus rooms yeah. for the three of us. Now they were married, so it was two rooms. Uh, and we kept getting offered jobs, $400 a week, $450 a week. And I wouldn't take them. And Frank was losing his mind. Yeah. Uh, Cause he's married. I got a dog. I mean, you know, it was a lot easier for mm-hmm. me. Um, and then we landed a job at Steak and Ale in Louisville. Um, and at, we, after the audition, he said, I got a couple other folks in the Steak and Ale chain that, that might be interested. Within two months, we had the next entire year booked. Um, the luxury of that, uh, you know, allowed me to continue. Right, yeah. If I don't meet that guy in Louisville, you know, two months later I'm probably substitute teaching somewhere mm-hmm. and I don't have the music career. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, it is, uh, I have said time and time again, my family is absolutely the center of my life. Outside of that, I love to do a lot of things, but there's only really two things I love. Mm-hmm. One's playing music and the other is snow skiing. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it, it turned out great for me. Um, you know, after the trio, I had purebred, and that was just mind-boggling because those guys were unbelievable. Uh, you know, Jerry Gillespie was, <laughs> you know, he was my guitar player. Yeah. And he ends up playing bass for Kathy Mattei right, for yeah. 18 years. I'm going, maybe I had him in the wrong job. Jerry's a funny story real quick. Uh, Jerry was at the hospital the day I was born. You're kidding yeah, Jerry and Rex and Ernie, they were playing in Maysville the night that I was born. And oh, they, my and gosh. And they went over after their gig to visit. Oh. So I haven't known them a long time. <laughs> wow. Well, Jerry and I, yeah, you know, when I came back, you know, so I come off the road in, uh, you know, 1983. And I think, you know, I, Greg Austin was a godsend to me mm-hmm. because, you know, I... The reason I came off the road, I said, I'll quit playing music for a living when I find the woman I want to be with the rest of my life. And yeah. I did. And, you know, marriage, steak and ale, you know, years before. Um, and it just turned out, she said yes when I asked her to marry me the third time. <clears throat> but she did say yes. And we were going to get married in July of that year. So I had to get a real job. I got a job as a blue jean salesman for Lee Jeans. Yeah. And uh, so I would travel to Eastern Kentucky every day and drive back, and Greg would let me just walk in whenever I wanted uh, to Austin City, and he'd keep a guitar on stage. And I could come in and just play, you know, rhythm guitar for a song or two mm-hmm. and leave. And if you want to sing, we'll sing one together. But uh, it was cold turkey. That yeah. was hard for me. Well, I kind of have a similar experience with George. I mean, George, I've known, you know, obviously my whole life. Right. We're related. But uh, I would sit in, you know, on one or two songs as I was learning, and it was always an open door. You know, if you wanted right. to go up and do one or two, and uh, I won't tell on any of the bar owners that when I was <laughs> underage and they were letting me in um, to play one or two songs. But once I was of age, I would just show up, and uh, whether I was getting paid or not, I was like, if I had a night off with my other bands, right. I'm going to go see George. 
because he was the best in town. Yeah. And I was going to watch. I was going to learn. And then eventually I'd start sitting in more and sitting in more. And eventually got the gig. Uh, yeah. When that, when that door opened, it was like, okay, you're ready. You can come in. But I didn't know, because I come from a rock background, a classic oh, rock okay. background and blues and stuff. So country, even as much as I enjoyed it, never played any. Yeah. He exactly. was my only education to country wow. music. So when I would watch them, everything was new to me. So it was kind of the same thing. I was thrown in, exactly. figured out. Exactly. You know, and it was a great education. Uh, real quick, uh, paint a picture of Two Keys for me. Because <laughs> I know it was different then than what the Two Keys that oh. I'm familiar with. Yeah. Um, and the times that I've played there, which is only a handful of times, um, does not compare to the stories that I've heard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know a whole lot about that. We've covered pretty much every other bar in town except Two Keys yeah. so far. <laughs> It so I'll tell two two eras, so the '60s era was just I mean, it was just a grungy college bar, mm-hmm. uh, and I I would play solo, and I had a band and shudder a little bit called Dandelion Wine W Y N E, <laughs> we were a psychedelic band again I had no place being in that band right, um, but that part of it when when we were playing whatever that music was, let's call it psychedelic rock. I mean, it was your worst nightmare of college kids in the 60s where there were no rules, no regulations. I would say the majority of people in there were under 21 and just drinking and sloshing. So it hasn't changed that much. It hasn't changed that much. (laughs) The the thing that, that really, you know, and then... I. So I'm playing music for a living, and and Jerry, that group, Purebred, they all left me. There, there seems to be a trend, you know, Frank and Allison left, <laughs> Purebred left. So I was going to replace them, because, I, again, I had the whole next year booked, and so I had to call the club that we had for the next two months booked and say, I, I can't be there. So I ended up picking up solo jobs, and then I was going to put another band together as quickly as I could. And so on a particular week before we were going to, I booked the band at uh, the Drawbridge Inn. There was a place there called the Gatehouse, and, uh, which was a separate building. It was a great club to play. Again, a restaurant with a bar attached yeah. to it. Um, and so the new band, whatever, whoever they were going to be, we were going to open up there. So I had this last week rehearsing the afternoons we had gigs four gigs at night that week so it was going to work out great and the first night was at the two keys and so we'd rehearsed two or three days before then so it was a monday night we're going to play at the keys and we set up do a little sound check and of course it the two it was a much smaller much narrower that was before they opened it up yeah um and so i come to the, the gig that night, and the bass player and drummer were brothers from down in Jackson, Kentucky. Well, they didn't show back up. I'm like, so I get on the phone, I get uh, Steve Martino to come play drums. I think Bob came and played bass. Yeah. Um, the next night, uh, we were at what's now, the, the, I, Blue Moon, I guess, but the Fireplace Lounge mm-hmm. over on uh, Euclid. Um, and my guitar player that I'd had Monday and Tuesday night, I had to say to him, you know, you, you, I, 
I love you, but you're just not what we're looking for. Yeah. And of course, that was a big fight. You, you know those stories. Um, and so Sonny Bays, a guitar player was, who was with uh, the Willie Daniels Band, you know, it's, it, and you know it, there is a fraternity of musicians, oh, especially yeah. in central Kentucky. Uh-huh. There's a lot of interchangeable parts. Yeah. At the very least, you know somebody, can you come? And, and so he came that night, and then I had another player on Friday night, and then, I mean, so the, the band on Monday to the band on Saturday turned over. The only one consistent was a keyboard player. And he knew a drummer from Virginia because we had to be at the Gatehouse Tavern on Tuesday night to open up. And so we have a sound check on Tuesday. We've got a month-long gig. Yeah. We're staying at the hotel there and good money. And the rehearsal was, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do the first hour by myself because we don't know that many songs. Mm-hmm. I said, so we're going to learn the first song of the set and the last song of the set. For tonight, in between, you've got to figure it out. I'll call out <laughs> keys, uh, and that you know, and it worked. Um, but they never could replace that first group. The it, first purebred was special. It's really funny. Uh, we, we interchange band members all the time. You know, somebody's sick or just can't make it or whatever. Um, and sometimes we'll just throw something together, for, yeah, just for the gig, you know. And um, I can't count the times people have come up to us and been like you guys are so good. How long have you all been playing? And I was like, I just met this guy an hour ago. You know? and then, or that's, how long have you all been playing that song? You played it perfectly. I was like, I've never even heard it before. You know, but and it happens and you just have to figure it out. Like you said. Yeah. That's right. But it's, it's fun doing that though. I mean, you, it's just, you get your own style, you know, and you can turn heads when you do it right. You know? And it's funny you say that we, for years, another long story for another show, on September 20th, 1973, I was in a motorcycle wreck and broke my neck. Well, that was the same night Jim Croce died. Oh, and man. I had just worshipped Croce. Right. His music and songwriting yeah. skills were just... And, it, and my wife makes fun of me, but it, it affected me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, had, I felt like I had this spiritual connection. Absolutely. Uh, and one of my wife's favorite lines is, you're so weird. <laughs> uh, and so I would say to Bob... Because, I mean, that, that's a whole other story of how those guys were part of my life. But I said, man, we need to do a Jim Croce night. And, you know, Bob sends you hear me go, oh, that's a great idea. Nobody will come, but it's a great <laughs> idea. And so 20 years after the wreck, September 20th, 1993, the oldie station here in town, and, uh, gosh, I can't remember his name, comes to me and says, uh, Croce's anniversary thing. I said, I want to do a Croce night on that night. Yeah. And so did it at the Blue Moon Saloon, Doug and JD. And so we went in on a Monday afternoon and, and I had sent, it was Jim Gleason and Bob Goff and I. And I sent each of them a cassette tape. Mm-hmm. Here are the songs in his keys. Fortunately, he's one of the few singers that sings low enough like me. And start to finish, here we go. And we had like one hour of rehearsal. So I only got through right. you know, a few songs. Uh, and, and to your point, we get to like the fourth or fifth of the song. I don't even remember what the song was, but it's one of the ballads. And it's fairly intricate. And, you, and you've been there. You hit that last note, and there is that momentary silence. And then they exploded into applause. Yeah. 
and we, we taped the show, and, and I said, right as soon as they applauded, I said, we have never done that song that well. And you can hear Gleason off mic going, that well? We've never done it that way because we've never played it together. <laughs> it's like, but, you know, if you surround yourself with good people, you can make things sound really right. good. Yeah, we used to, uh, our pedal steel player used to make the cricket noises on his <laughs> steel whenever that would happen to us. Uh, the few times I have seen you play, which isn't enough, uh, <laughs> I never get a chance to see anybody really. Yeah. But uh, you were talking about watching the crowd and learning how to entertain. Right. That's what I've noticed when I've been at your shows is how many people respond to you and sing along to you, and the way you work a tip jar like is a completely <laughs> different than the other bands, and you do it really well. Um, and I don't know if it's the song selection or it's the way that you talk. Because you add, you even did it Wednesday night, you will break a song down and almost force them yeah. to join along, you know, whether they like it or not. And they fall right into your trap, yeah. you know. Like, uh, to me, when I'm playing live, it doesn't really matter what the song is. If I get that kind of response, it's totally worth it. Even if I don't Absolutely. like the song, you yeah, know. If yeah. I can get that response, sometimes I don't get that response because I don't want to play that song. <laughs> but when when I do cave and I play the song that I hate, yep, it's worth it. Yeah, you know, is it just song selection to you, or you just got a bag of tricks up your sleeve from the experience to get them riled up like that? There's a couple of things. Yeah, uh, and again, I think it's studying mm-hmm. audiences that I did. Um, 50 years ago. Right, uh, yeah. You know, I call them, like our shows at Henry Clay's, you know, my daughter and I did Facebook live shows. We did 20 shows yeah, during COVID. Yeah, I want COVID. to talk about that after a while too. And, yeah. and we called those conversations yeah. because there's no audience. Exactly. Uh, and so Bob and I now call the Henry Clay shows. These are conversations. And yeah. that, that room works for me because those tables well, it's so are... so intimate. That's right. Yeah, they're in and, your face. And I want to, I want to move you some way mm-hmm. it might mean laughing it might mean singing it might mean crying um, what I know is if I can engage someone in front of me especially if you if you see me enough you'll I'll say to somebody what's your name and now I'm going to call you John during the show mm-hmm. right and for those next two hours you know and I'm watching you as I'm talking to Jim or Bob or whomever and I said, now, John, pay attention to this, because you, you have to... Make them part of it. Yeah, and, and I learned, and Doug is so good at this at Henry Clay's, the sound, because my show's dependent upon me talking. Mm-hmm. You know, and I make fun of it, and all the bad guys make fun of it, but people have to hear me when I talk. And so many PA systems, you, that Get gets lost. lost. Yeah. The other thing is... The audience has to be somewhat in the dark, so the lights are on me. And I know it sounds really egotistic, but it's... It's an it's, art form. It is an art form. Yeah. Um, and, and I just learned that I had more fun <coughs> Excuse me. If, if I'm having a conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and with the trio, with Frank and Allison, I mean, Frank even had a little flashlight, and, you know, and he'd be playing the piano, and bam, you'd get hit with the light from stage. And you're like, what in the world? Um, 
it, it's engaging the audience. If I can't engage the audience, then I don't think I've done a good job. Yeah. Because, you know, I mentioned earlier, I've heard myself on tape. I know what I, what I, well, I know who I am vocally. You know what your powers are. Yeah. You're not, yeah. You're not coming because you want to hear me sing Fire and Rain. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to hear Fire and Rain, go turn on James Taylor. That's, sure. You're coming because I do it a little different, and I'm going to sing to you. Yeah. You know, it's that uh, I get really critical when I'm watching folks sing on TV and they got their eyes shut. and It's like, no, you, you, you want the audience to connect with you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Bob said to me one time, this has been a few years ago, he said, he said, you know, Ian made the comment to me the other day that you always seem to be having so much fun. He yeah. said, and I told him, because he is. Again, I love performing for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and the song selection is a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, What's really interesting to me, the countless bands that I've been in, everyone has a different approach too. Right. And you can make it work in many different ways. You know, you like you said, you got to find your niche. That's you know? right. But like if you took one of George's set list and you looked at it, you would think this isn't going to work. There's yeah. 500 people in a honky tonk and there's 20 slow songs on here. Yeah. And sad tearing your beer songs this isn't going to work yeah. but when he hits those notes so he won't I mean he'll talk but he doesn't talk like you do yeah. <laughs> but he'll hit those notes and he has them and yes. then on the more upbeat songs he yells at them and uh-huh. makes them get into it so it's a it. totally different show but it works but it works you for know? him and because uh, he knows what his power is yeah. you know? and it's that vocal thing and uh, we might I mean we might do a Vince Gill song a whole step higher than Vince sings it, and holy everyone God. stops and looks and goes, "Holy shit!" You know? <laughs> yeah, how is? I mean, yeah, I mean, and that was you know the very first time I heard him. I'm sitting in the back of Austin City, mm-hmm. and that voice. I said, "Man, maybe the best voice ever sang Austin City Saloon." And and there might be someone else, or you take. Kiss, for example, they do it with pyrotechnics. You exactly. know, everyone has their own exactly. thing, and you just got to find that niche. Yeah. You know how it's gonna go come across to the audience. Yeah, you know? I got a funny tip jar story oh, for you, I real quick. Uh, when I was talking about it earlier, and we were talking about uh, Jesse before the yes. recording started, I used to play with Jesse Pennington, and uh, I had already been playing for you know I don't know twelve, thirteen years uh, at this point. But every gig I'd ever had had been, you know, I got paid a flat fee. Right. That's just how I knew. That's all I knew. Okay. I never played for tips. Okay. And I never set out a tip jar. Yeah. And I even frowned upon it at one point because I thought, well, I'm already getting paid. I yeah. feel weird if I put a tip jar out. I, and you, I have a similar feeling. It was that. just a self-conscious yeah. thing. Like, and I'd never seen anyone do it except for Nashville, but that's all they made. That's right. So I thought, okay, the rules are different here. We don't put out tip jars. Well, Jesse, the first show I do with Jesse, she throws a tip jar out there, and I already know what we're making, and it's good money. And I was like, ah, so I don't know how I feel about that, but it's it's not my gig. Yep. It's Jesse's gig. Then I saw it fill up, <laughs> and I said, oh, wait a minute. I was like, is this allowed? Yeah. And she's like, what? And I'm like, 
was like, you know, we're already getting paid, right? She's like, yeah, it's just a tip jar. She goes, they don't have to put money in it. That's but right. If they want to, yeah. it's there for them. That's and then exactly I saw right. how much was in it. I've put a tip jar out ever since. <laughs> well, and, you know, when I first started doing it, I would say to folks, I said, now, if you if there's something you want to hear tonight, uh, get the official song request form out. It's a $20 bill. Yeah. Yeah. And people would do it. Yeah. And it, uh, it was like, okay, well, um, it worked. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, 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 and now, I mean, you know, we talked the other night. I mean, I made good money playing music. Right. You, you, you can't do that. It doesn't seem to me now. It's because so hard. You know, I work five or six nights every week. Yeah. Um, you know, and we would usually be in a town for a month. You know, we would do one-nighters only in December because the money got stupid and we could. Yeah. But January through November, I mean, we'd go to Birmingham. We'd be there. I mean, we would leave the first Sunday in uh, January and drive to Florida. Mm-hmm. And we'd play Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa. And then we'd go over and hit Birmingham. We'd come back to Atlanta. And we were always in Lexington in April and October for Keeneland. Yeah. Steak and Ale always wanted us here. And then when Austin City opened up, it gave me a chance to be home a little more frequently. But you know, we were only in town, I bet, three months a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, you know, and to me, that was the exciting part of Lexington because when I came back, you know, it wasn't two keys. It was this, and so in town you'd have Greg playing at Austin City, uh, Doug would be at Breedings, Larry would be playing at the brewery, and I'd be at Steak and Ale. And most nights we'd all end up at the Howard Johnson's on Nicholasville right. Road at yeah. 2 o'clock in the morning. It was us and the wrestlers from Continental Inn. I, during COVID, I found a box and a storage of half and three-quarter written songs. And it's a song from then that I started writing called Rockers and Wrestlers. And I, and I said, i got to finish that. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I haven't. But, I mean, that period of time, and uh, when the first purebred group left me, and that's when Doug was opening breedings on New Circle sure. Road. Yeah. And uh, so I was, I've stayed in Lexington and worked at a club, a, restaurant T.W. Lee's on Richmond Road. I worked there January and February and then put in that, that's when I put, that was, the trio had left me, so I, I, that's when I started Purebred. And it was Doug, because I was looking at equipment, Yeah, you know, so I was hanging out with them, and so I'd come over to Breedings. Oh, that's how I ended up buying nothing but JBL monitors, because that's those wedge mm-hmm. monitors. You know, and I'll never forget that that first afternoon of the opening night he's standing on stage and we're looking out there he goes jr over there's a terrace room and over there's a terrace room and here's a terrace room so there's three terrace rooms here what if nobody shows up <laughs> by eight o'clock that night there was a line around the building right yeah but i mean they were so helpful you know it was that fraternity i mean they didn't have to be you know, here I was, I was a guy without a band. Yeah. And trying to, you know, and that's when I found Jerry Gillespie and Willie Campbell and, uh, oh gosh, who am I missing? Larry Brewer and Mickey Connolly. I mean, they were just, they were the best musicians I'd ever played with in my life. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. Let me ask you about that. You mentioned the Facebook Live thing earlier. Yes. So when COVID, <laughs> the shutdown first happened, 
I had I had a panic, you know, because yeah. I mean I've got my day job, but the music is a major part of that income, and everything just stopped. Yeah. And when I saw people first start doing the the online Facebook, you know, concerts, I was like, okay, well, it's weird, but I'll try it. And I think I did too, and I hated yeah. it. And I was like, I can't play to a screen. I just can't do it. And luckily, I ended up. George was playing places that didn't shut down. Oh, so wow. we were able to keep that. working. You oh, know, wow. Um, it was different, but we yeah. still had a gig. Sure. Um, but you had great success with it. And I was reading an article. I googled you, Uh-oh. and there was a thing about people actually having block parties and yeah. watching you. Oh. That was that how Walter was, Tunis article. How was the transition, though? Mm. Because you just talked about how you have to have somebody to sing to. Yeah. And you have to pinpoint somebody and make them part of the show. And you don't have anybody like that. It's just you and your daughter, right? Yeah. And, and what was weird, there's a guy named Mike Shackelford from Lexington, a friend of Greg's back in the 60s and 70s. And he had a band called Justin. Uh, and they just kind of sort of up and moved from Lexington and settled in Jacksonville, Florida working the Steak and Ale there. I knew him when he was here, and then we booked Steak and Ale in Jacksonville, and yeah. I'd heard, yeah, Mike's gone to Florida, but, and then one night I look up, and there he is. And so we were friends, have stayed friends, but over the last decade, kind of separated. Sure. And I get a Facebook message from him after COVID mm-hmm. hits, and he said, he said, you're not gonna believe what I just did. I did a show last night on my computer said my son came in and set it all up on facebook and a bunch of people were on well it was the same weekend my daughter had come home from new york on friday for a four-day weekend for my granddaughter's birthday yeah she had closed for four days (laughs) well the next day she got the call saying theater's over done don't come back and so I asked her, because she would occasionally sit in and she would do you know, stuff with me at the hospital for the kids and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, I mean, she's a musical theater. We're totally, totally, totally different world. I mean, we, we did spend, another part of my music life, we did six musicals together at the Children's Theater. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I said, what'd you do? And she said, oh, Dad, it's just not what. I said, okay, what if we do an hour and I'll do the first half and then you join me? She said, oh, okay. But that first night, you know, we had the ring light because she used it for auditions. Put the phone in there. My wife's sitting there with her iPad. And I I didn't know what to expect. I mean, if you've done it, you know. And it's like, okay. And I put it out there and got some response. And what I learned that very first night, we had there's over 800 views. Yeah. You know, as Walter Tunis told me, he said, you've got to assume every view is at least two people. Right. At least. And I'm thinking, that's just mind-boggling. 1,600 people. Part of it is, it's my age. You know, it's, it's history. I've got over 50 years of people listening to me and now suddenly here's this format where no matter where they were, they could hit a button and type in, have a conversation mm-hmm. with my wife who would relay to me. But that, that very first night, you know, I had a theme. I was trying to be really structured. Yeah. And it was going to be different than my normal shows. And I sang that first song 
and, and I've gone back and looked at it because, you know, Facebook reminds you two years ago. Sure, yeah. So I did that first <clears throat> song and there's nothing. And I said, I hope somebody's out there. And then I looked over at Stacy and she went, people are out there. They're listening. And, yeah. and it's, you know, we ended up doing <coughs> 20 Sorry. shows over 18 months. Um, and we calculated it. It probably averaged 1,200 views a show. Yeah. Which, but people were, I mean, people come on and say, yeah, there's 20 of us here. We said, we're socially distant, but we're on in the cul-de-sac. A guy rented this blow-up TV. That's wild. And everybody would watch. And then they would Zoom with each other so they felt like they were together in the bar. And, and I, I made the comment to someone recently. It, it showed me, for all of us, how, I always said desperate, but somebody said no, how needing people needed something where there was some form of communication back and forth that was not just you're looking at a screen and learning something. You can communicate with yeah. that person. Uh, and people send in, you know, they type in requests. Yeah. Um, and it just, I mean, at, at one point, we had people from like know, 30 states, and multiple countries. You had a woman from Egypt that watched several nights. And I'd be like, crazy. What are you doing? She said, well, my best friend who lives in California apparently lived in Kentucky in the 70s and used to come see you. And she said for me to get on and watch it. And so I'm going to be watching every time now. I mean, wow. Um, it, and it also, it's, it's music, mm -hmm. you know, it's not about the quality of the music. It's, it's the actual performance and telling stories. Yeah. Um, and it, and towards the end, as people started getting, you know, vaccinated and boosted, we'd have two or three people come in because mm -hmm. the room's not that big. Right. Uh, and it'd be great fun, <coughs> you know, folks come in and. You know, they clap. We all clap. Yeah. And then we'd order pizza. Yeah. Um, but, but getting back to the club was, was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it, I was afraid of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. When we tried to do the virtual thing, I think age has a lot to do with it, too. Because a right. lot of the people who would watch us are still wanting to go out. Right. They don't want, they're, they're restless at home and they don't want to sit and watch a screen. They're trying to find something to occupy. And a lot of the people that would watch you probably stopped going out a You're long time ago. absolutely right. And now are like, hey, I can see him again and I, and I can just do what I normally do. You know? And it's interesting you say that. I was at a friend's house who was a regular on Facebook Live and his wife had a surprise birthday party for him just in this last 12 months. And so I came to the party six, eight people came up and said, when are you going to do another Facebook show? Yeah. And I'd say, well, you know, I'm there once a month live. You can come. Well, we're not comfortable coming out. But right, yeah. We would watch you. I'd never met these. These were not people from my past. Sure. These are people who only know me from Facebook Live. Yeah. And so I, I'm still up for debate, but my plan, <laughs> I'm going to do a Facebook Live Christmas show. Cool. Awesome. That'd be great. So, I, yeah, who knows? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, do it on a Monday or a Tuesday night and uh, see what happens. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, 
I want to fast forward back yes. to uh, last week's show. Okay. So um, I know how I felt about it, and I know how George felt about it, but I think I can speak for almost everyone that was there that nobody on that stage would consider themselves a legend. Absolutely. You're but they would all consider everyone else to be one. Oh, okay. quite. And like man, you were talking you about being... You are the legends. I mean... The, the family, the, you know, the the family of friends of this band that all help each other out, I think was more important to everybody. And the fact that we were all just there as a family on stage was so cool. And George, who, you know, is younger than the other ones that were up there, (laughs) but still, you know, up there in age, but he was nervous. He even told me he was nervous. He's like, I don't know if I belong in this company. Oh man. And, uh, and I had to kind of reassure him. Like, you know, I, I think you do, you know, but I was like, I think they all feel the same way yeah. about each other. Yeah. And then once we're up there, especially when we got up and did the wait and everyone's there at the same time, it was just fun, man. And then I, I don't know how Sam felt, but me and Sam were the youngest on the yeah. stage. And I know, you know, Johnny's his father-in-law, correct? Exactly. So it had to mean something to him, you know, and it definitely means something to me. But uh, how does it feel to be considered a legend, you know, in this area? Well, I mean, I don't. Is it, is it weird to you, though, well, being told that? <laughs> well, I was, well, and really, I'll tell this story quickly if it's possible. So Kip Cornett was the man behind doing this. Uh-huh. And so he went to Doug Breeding. Well, I, I know none of this. And I'm at an event with my wife for Kentucky Children's Hospital because we do a lot of work with him. And I see Kip and his wife, and he comes up and says, I cannot thank you enough. Again, I've known Kip since the 70s, sure. and I went, you're welcome. For what? <laughs> and he says, has Doug not talked to you? And I went, no, but if Doug's doing something, I'm in. Yeah. And and that's when it, you know, and that's when Kip told me what it was, and I said, well, first of all, I ain't no legend, but I'd be thrilled to, to do it. Right. Uh, and for me, it was selfish, you know, and I know that there was an attempt to get Larry Redman. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had this great memory. I have it on my wall in the basement. Greg, Doug, and Larry and I did two benefits called, the one, the first one was called uh, Together Again for the first time. Yeah. And the next one was called Together Again the second time around. And Exile was the band. Yeah. You know, so you got these four guys who front bands, local bands. Sure. And you got Exile playing behind us. And we gave all the money away. Uh, it was, you know, and the thought that the four of us could be back together was just, I said, I'll do anything for that. And then when Johnny was going to be, when they said, Sam, uh, George is coming, it's like, oh my God, this yeah. is. And so there was, you know, Rita Floyd, who takes all these fabulous yeah, pictures. Big shout out to Rita. She's always there for the local talent. Yeah. Always. And well, one of her pictures is Greg and Doug and I. And, and I look at that picture since last week, and, yeah. and that is that flood of memories. Right. Um, and like you said, singing the weight, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I was like, I got to stand next to George and sing with him. Yeah. Then I heard his voice real close and I was like, I was kind of ticked off. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was a fun night and, uh, it was just, everyone seemed to have a blast, you know, and seeing the smiles on everybody's face. I mean, it was just, yeah. oh, it was a cool thing. Um, before we get too far, uh, I always ask everyone the same question. And uh, we were talking before we hit record, so I think I already know the answer to one of them. Okay. But I always ask, what's the coolest place you've ever played? Oh. Well. And 
if there's one place you could play on your bucket list, mm. any place you could, could, what would it be? Well, the one place I've played is the Apollo. Yeah, that's a, I kind of figured. That, once we were talking, I was like, well, I know that. <laughs> you know, because first of all, I mean, you got you got to put some reality around it. Yeah. That, you know, here's a about to be 74-year-old white man on the stage of the Apollo was just, I mean, it's, it's the And not get booed off. And not get booed <laughs> off. It's exactly right. And the pictures I got from backstage in the green room, and the, it was just fabulous. Um, the pl- place I'd like to play is the Opry. Yeah. I mean, it's just, that's Mother Church. Yeah. It's um, a lot of people's answers. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's cool, though, because a lot of people, depending on their background, have different answers for that bucket list, but usually the Opry is almost always yeah. one of them. Uh, but yeah, that would that would definitely be. You know, I had I had an moment. experience just recently, which was a, a mix just in the last month. Mike Pratt, the basketball player from UK, who mm-hmm. was one of the voices of the Wildcats with Tom Leach. Mm-hmm. We met each other the first week of school in 1966 and became friends, and we remained friends. and And so they asked me to sing at his service which was held in Memorial Coliseum. Oh, yeah. And so I'm on the floor at Memorial singing my old Kentucky home with this whole crowd of people sitting in that lower arena that I've known since the 60s. And somebody came up afterwards, and he, who's a good friend, and he's allowed to say what he said. He said, you forgot the words, didn't you? <laughs> and I said, no, I got choked up. Yeah. I, I got to the tagline, and I just needed mm-hmm. four bars to... Get yep. together again, that's and wild, uh, yeah. so I mean that's that was a pretty cool moment for me. Yeah, you know I've sung at Rupp Arena, you know, and that was a big deal. We did a concert there. We were an opening act for somebody, and mm-hmm. uh, I think we were the opening act for Exile. I think uh, you know I, I've been I've I've got you know like you said niches, you know. So I've I've written theme songs for the United Way. Or Kentucky Children's Hospital. I've got a lot of that yeah. that gets played once. Right. Um, and, and as you know, trying to write songs for a specific purpose, mm-hmm. like in, yeah. it's, uh, you know, as you were saying earlier with your new Christmas song, Christmas When I Was Five, right, yeah. that's a specific purpose, but it's your child. Sure. I mean, but when somebody says, you know, I'll never forget, I, I wrote two theme songs for the United Way campaign. Uh, and guy from Toyota was in charge of the campaign, raising money, and, he, and we were neighbors. He said, I need you to write a song. And I said, okay. And he called me the next day and said, well, is it finished? <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't work like that. I don't even have an idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I wrote a song for a children's book. Uh, you know, I've been just really blessed with not just performing on stage. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned, you know, being with my daughter, I mean, doing Lexington Children's Theaters, summer family musicals. Um, she was nine, I guess, the first year, eight or nine, and she'd been at a workshop and came home and said, they're going to have these summer musicals where families perform together. Well, I had done theater in college, but that's been a while. Yeah. And the next thing I know, she and I are doing them. We did them. Six years in a row, then we had a hiatus and did one more. But technically, the last one we did, we did Beauty and the Beast together, and she was Belle, and I got to play her father. That's cool. So just like you talking about singing with B, right? I got to, on stage, sing with my daughter 
no matter what. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that. That is the highlight. Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just, and, and without music, I don't have that in my life. None of those experiences. Right. Um, and that's why I love it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's more than I love to do it. I love it yeah. because of what it's brought to my life. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, not just uh, sitting around and listening to it or just playing it at home. You mean the friends that you make, you know, the connections that you yeah. make. It's it's a music's really powerful, you know, in a lot of ways. You know, I. Uh, I don't know. I wrote this song for the Children's Hospital anniversary, and uh, one of the, my family's dear, dear, dear friends, uh, 22 years old, died a week after that. And mm-hmm. We knew that was coming. Um, and part of that song was where, you know, you shut your eyes and you go to whatever place that is to write, and, and it was, this is her talking to God. And this is what he said to her. Mm-hmm. And that verse is what he said to her. Um, that changes my life. Oh, yeah. You know, the relationship with her changed my life. Mm-hmm. But being able to put it down. You know, one of the, you know, somebody asked me one time, I said, when did you start writing songs? And I said, when I realized I had stories to tell. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't say I'm going to be a songwriter. By golly, here we yeah. go. Here, get my pen and pencil out. I don't do that well. Yeah, that's why I had that box of half and three quarter written songs. Right, uh, but I was trying to write a song about my grandfather because he had made my first guitar for me. Yeah, and it was virtually unplayable. I have two of them hanging on my studio desk. You know, they're, he had these big gnarly hands, and I didn't know it at the time. He tuned them to open tuning. You know, and I do a ton of songs in open G. Yeah. I have a guitar on stage in open G. But trying to write a song for him, you know, because I came from an academic background, I would, I'd read it and I'd go, this is not a term paper. Yeah. yeah. And it was when one night I was living in Bloomington, I was sitting out on the porch and it dawned on me, the memories from him when I just shut my eyes and he had what we used to call a truck farm. You know, he had like three acres. And everything, the memories were picking blackberries, eating watermelon with them. Mm-hmm. They were very sensory-driven things. Yeah. And so it was, you know, and it just said, watermelon days. Wow, that's how it started. Mm-hmm. And then it came pretty quickly. But it said what I needed it to say. Yeah. It's cool like that, man. Uh, just just one little nugget of inspiration yeah. can go a long way. Exactly. Well, man... I can't thank you enough for coming on here today. I've had a blast talking to you. Well, I wish John, George could have made it. Well, me too. And I, you know, I just this time of getting to know you better. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I watched you and, and stood on stage and watched you play and just go, well, that ticks me off. <laughs> uh, I mean, you are an absolute artist. Oh, thank you. Um, tasteful. Um, it's obvious you've spent time around JP. <laughs> you know, JP once told me, he said, it's not how many notes you can play. Yeah. It's when you play them. Uh, and, I, I'll, I'll admit to stealing quite a bit from him. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm a big admirer of yours and, and a fan of George's, and uh, hopefully we can write or play together. I'd love to do that, man. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Write and play. I mean, I'd love to get on stage with you sometime again. Yeah. Um, Speaking of, this is going to air tonight. Oh, my. So uh, if <laughs> okay. you're playing this weekend, t- 
tell us where you're going to be at. Okay. Where we can find you. Um, playing Friday night, my once a month gig, and uh, you know Bob Goff always, always he's my music director. Yeah. He tells me what I'm playing. Uh-huh. He sends me the set list. Uh, and this month, Jim Gleason's playing with us. Cool. And that was you know what Bob's done this last year or so when since I've gone back to Henry Clay's, he's rotating players in. Mm-hmm. So last Wednesday night, you know, Sam knew all my songs. Wanda knew all my songs. Right. Mike knew all my everybody. You know, poor Doc, he was the only one. You know, and I'm tuned to half step down, so he's playing on the black keys. Which yeah. I'm going. How do you even do that? But uh, Austin City Friday night, eight to ten, and uh, or, uh, Henry Clay's. Henry Clay's. <laughs> Did I say Austin yeah. City? Man, a lot of Austin City mind mm-hmm. things here. Yeah, Henry Clay's Public House, eight to ten, and we got a couple new songs. Good deal, man. Yeah, right. guys, go out and check out Jim. It's a great show. It's a lot of fun. They said it's 8 to 10. 8 to 10. I do the AARP set. <laughs> I, I promise you, you're going to have a blast. Dude, I really appreciate it. Let's do this again. I will. It's Thank great. Thank you so much, Jim. All right, bud. Bye. That concludes tonight's episode of Weekend Superstars. Make sure and go down to Henry Clay's Public House this Friday night to catch Jim Richardson in action. I promise you it's a good time, and you'll be singing along to every song. And don't miss out on next week's episode. We're going to have uh, Austin City Hall of Famer, Mr. Scott Sid. So until then, see you next time. Thanks for listening.